don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 36. And today we are talking about a movie we probably should have talked about a long time ago, which is a 2007's Into the Wild, directed by Sean Penn. Starring Emil Hirsch and a pretty solid cast of actors. And as we were talking about before we started recording, this is a movie that I really enjoyed when I saw it in probably 2008 or late 2007. And then watching it, uh, rewatching it earlier today, didn't really like it quite as much, or I guess found more things about it um, problematic for me, I guess. I loved it when i saw it in 2007 and i really liked it when i watched it again this week um i will it's not um it was not some sort of transcendent experience which i remember it being a sort of this was a this was a big deal in my life uh, i remember i saw it i guess when i was about halfway through college undergrad and I remember late in college, 2009, I guess, um, I would, because I would watch this once or twice a year, this movie, and I would have to consciously avoid it when I was like trying to graduate and I had all these like papers to write. And I was just like, because when I watch this movie, you know, it's so cliche, but it just makes me want to just like hit the fucking road, you know? Um, and so when it, if I have responsibility, the same way I can't read Henry Miller now, uh, if I have responsibilities, cause he just makes, you know, he just sort of makes you want to live this preposterous life. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I, uh, I still like it. Yeah. And I, I didn't hate it by any means, but it just, some things about it struck me the wrong way. And I think a big part of why, is for one just kind of the the intervening decade has changed my my brain in a number of ways and also uh, it has not for me <laughs> but it, it also well i didn't say it was for the for the good um but also this week um you know on monday i kind of ran out and bought a copy of john krakauer's book that this is based on and uh, gave gave it a read uh, before rewatching the movie and seeing the things that don't quite line up um, kind of took some of the shine off of it for me or, or sort of seeing things that in the book are not really points of emphasis, but Sean Penn takes them and stretches them into these bigger things um, kind of, I don't know, kind of made me not like the film as much. I still enjoyed it, but um, it also kind of the cinematography in places sort of like, you know, at the end when he's when McCandless is dying and the camera work becomes all like jumpy and like almost like handheld and zooming it's, around. It's a little disorienting. You know, it, it's uh, one thing I noticed watching it this morning was it's the, the style is so much less formal than you might think a movie like this would be. Um, and it starts right off the bat with the, uh, the, uh, uh, what do you call it? Just like the letters that he's writing to Wayne that starts the movie in this like yellow sort of like crayon handwriting yeah, ro- rolling across the screen. Um, 
and then the titles are this sort of like I want to say like Nickelodeon type green. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, sort of little... ga- it looks like Gak or something. Yeah, uh, which is so strange. Um, it's such a strange choice. And, and then, the, like you said, those like super uh, jump cuts that call attention to themselves. There's a point where uh, the character Chris McCandless looks into the camera you know yeah. he's like eating the apple yeah, on the side he, of the he does street it later on too kind of when he's you know the shit has hit the fan in alaska and he kind of like gives the camera a little look it's a little yeah so so that he's breaking the fourth wall which is just not what you would expect in a movie that at most of the time feels like a document is you know made to seem documentary-ish yeah uh, and you know what I found um, while watching this again? Uh, so Sean Penn directed it and wrote the screenplay. And I just kept imagining Sean Penn as his character in The uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. <laughs> I thought about that movie watching this, honestly. Where he's like, you know, the grizzled like outdoor photographer who like spends all this time, you know, out in the wild trying to take the perfect picture of a bald eagle or whatever. Um, yeah. it just gave me that same kind of vibe because, you know, Sean Penn, as far as, you know, well-known Hollywood actors go, he has a very distinctive kind of air about him. Right. Um, the, the, he has a sort of like tortured genius thing that he, I think purposefully tries to develop. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll say so. this. There's, there's, there's a, it's an easy sort of thing to criticize and, and you see like team America, you know, lampooning him and, and that kind of thing. Oh yeah, <clears throat> I saw um, Spike Lee's documentary about Katrina when the levees break. Yes, and just out of fucking nowhere, Sean, you see Sean Penn in a canoe with a fucking shotgun, uh, riding around trying to like help people. And I'm like, maybe this guy's the real fucking deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe he. I'm sure he's got some. I don't know that the causes that he dedicates himself to, I think are noble causes. Um, I mean, he also Sean, had the thing Sean in the nineties. O'Connell is the character's name in, uh, uh, Walter Mitty. Oh, okay. Well, he also has a thing where in the nineties he like abused Madonna. Yeah. Which is not, not a great thing to have in your past to have done. No. Um, but no. you know, he, I don't know. It's kind of like the Casey Affleck thing. Like when he's really dedicating himself to a role and is, you know, putting his all into acting, he is really in, like a fantastic performer to watch. He really is. Milk may be his best acting Milk. performance. Mystic River, he's really good. Um, <clears throat> uh, so. Thin Red Line, not bad. Yeah. Uh, but you Kind know, of a smaller role. But. One of those kind of like troublesome <clears throat> actors. Anyway, here as a director and screenwriter, which the screenwriting thing kind of surprised me a little bit. I, I, I either didn't know that or had forgotten about it and how he adapts the book. He takes, like I was saying, he takes these things that are sort of minor events and stretches them out. So sort of like when Chris meets the Danish couple inside the grand Canyon in Mm -hmm. in the book that's mentioned, it's like one sentence, but here he stretches it out and makes it this whole thing and has the, the lady be naked the whole time. And it's kind of this comic relief sort of, yeah, sort of exposition point. Well, and and I think uh, it's been a while since I've read the book, but I think the most liberties are taken with the 
it seems like Penn kind of exaggerates the impact McCandless has on all these, this yeah. like cast of characters. Like every, the one thing I notice is like, everyone's like really sad and like on the verge of tears when he leaves them. And it seems like, I mean, with the, with a few exceptions, he only knows them for, you know, a very small amount of time. Um, and they're just like heartbroken that he, he wants to leave. And uh, I just don't think that's, it rings a little untrue, but I also, again, like I was saying before we started recording, there's a limit to, uh, uh, fidelity criticism here. You know, um, uh, I think we, you know, we can, it, we can have a good conversation about how well Penn adapts the book. And then we can have a conversation about, why did he make the changes he made? Because, because honestly, most people, more people are going to see the movie than are going to read the book. So what, why did he make the changes that he made? Uh, I think, I think we both agree he's trying to do something very different than the book is trying to do, which is a, a work of journalism. Yeah. And I'm really glad you, you mentioned the point about his impact on these people's lives because that was kind of the biggest change that I noticed between, well, I mean, it, I don't know, maybe it's not a change, but it, in the movie you can't do quite as much explaining of it. Whereas in the book, Krakauer really dedicated uh, some space to it and talking about how this person who's just like out there in the world, Christopher McCandless under this alias of Alex meets these people and is so charming and so, sort of, you know, almost otherworldly and how he's so smart and talented and forthcoming and, and truthful. Yeah. And wise that they sort of quickly kind of fall in love with him and come to care for him deeply. And he mentions in the book that none of these people, he probably, he doesn't spend more than like two weeks with any of them really. Um, except for like Wayne, Wayne, I think yeah. with Wayne, even in the book, it mentions like the first time he works for Wayne, he only works for like two weeks and then Wayne gets arrested. And then he like mm-hmm. comes back and works for him later on. Uh, but it's just such a, I don't know, it's strange to see um, you know, these people be ta- so taken with somebody in such a short amount of time. And it does kind of give uh, McCandless this air of being this kind of, you know, incredibly charming guy um, or, you know, fascinating guy. Because um, even like uh, the, the Hal Holbrook character, uh, I forget his name in the, the movie. Um, but you know, great acting. And I think Holbrook got like nominated for best supporting actor or something for it. Yeah. And it's like no screen time. Yeah. And in the book, that guy's, that guy's story in the book is like incredibly heartbreaking because he meets McCandless and like falls in love with him basically. And like wants to adopt him. and, uh, you know, Alex leaves. And then that guy takes his advice and like gets a trailer and moves out into the desert and is like living amongst nature and all that. And then when he finds out that Alex dies, he like relapses and starts drinking whiskey again. He stops believing in God. <laughs> it's just this like ruins his life almost. Wow. I don't remember that. Like, that's yeah. And it's really crazy. like, holy shit, dude. That's <laughs> a little extreme. So it makes you wonder, like, it seems like not only, and this is me like putting on my uh, completely amateur, you know, idiot psychiatrist hat. Uh, it seems like McCandless was one of these people that's sort of naturally charismatic and can have a conversation with anybody and, uh, you know, has that sort of magnetism about him. 
And it's almost like he attracted people that were sort of the opposite and were looking for someone to sort of like fill some sort of gap in their life. So Mm -hmm. it was just sort of like a perfect match. And then so when he leaves, they're like, oh, no, I'll never meet another person like him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And there's you wonder you like I said, you wonder sort of how much of this is exaggerated in the film. Uh, and how much is, is this sort of, uh, just the psychology of tramping or, uh, you know, people wandering around. I, I can't imagine that's exactly conducive to long lasting, fruitful relationships. Um, but it's, it, what's, what feels dishonest in the movie is that the, uh, you know, Sean Penn portrays these characters as, as like expecting, uh, Chris to stay with them for a long time. Um, which it just doesn't really make any, any sense. Um, and he's like this problem solver, you know, he, he meets the, the hippies with the, uh, Catherine Keener and I'm not sure the, uh, the actor's name, uh, and he just like goes and plays in the ocean with Catherine Keener and kind of fixes their marriage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, af- after being compared to Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the, uh, like one of the greatest liberties that Penn takes, and I think it like, I understand and it's, it makes sense is with the uh, Kristen Stewart character. Uh, I forget her name. Tracy. Was that her name? I can't remember. Um, something with a T, but so in the, in the book, it's mentioned that when he's staying at slab city, which again is only for like a week or two, this uh, young girl like has this really intense crush on him and he, you know, just kind of rebukes her, like doesn't pursue it because in like in the film, he's like 23 and she's like 16 or 17. Mm -hmm. And, and in the book, it sort of emphasizes that he thought she was sort of like too immature kind of like a silly person she wasn't serious enough about life um she hadn't read all the tolstoy or anything like that so he he shrugs around in the film yeah but it's so rare i think in a film to see a a character like not pursue a sexual relationship with another character it's almost like i don't know to see it again i was like oh that's it's kind of refreshing that that's in there yeah, and something I noticed that, that that conversation reminds me of is how a lot of the characters treat Chris like he's younger than he is. And and this is my, my main criticism of this movie is that – or of the story really uh, – is that he's a grown-up. You can't run away from home when you're a grown-up. He doesn't exactly. even live in the same city as his parents when he's in college. Um, yeah. So he's so like, 22, right, when he does it. and Right. And so the big question that the movie presents is like, oh, is this you – know, like it starts with that Byron quote that ends with, uh, I love uh, not man the less but nature the more. And so the the – question central question of this movie that you're trying to figure out is is his, is this uh, impulse he has a result of a desire for 
freedom and nature or is he escaping some sort of particular uh sort of very negative uh family situation uh, and so that that's how the question is kind of framed but he doesn't live in the same city he's 22 when this starts he doesn't live with his parents he doesn't live in the same city as his parents all he would have had to do to go live the the tramp life is just like lie and say i'm going to do i'm going to work on a farm i'm going to do something else blah 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 and write a letter every three months you know keeping up the lie uh what lets you know that this journey he takes is is about spite is that he doesn't do that is that he tries to run away from home as a grown as a grown up yeah you know um and so it's very intentional um that he doesn't contact them um so uh, to me the that sort of answers that question of the of the true story, yeah. you know, uh, because, because it just doesn't have to be that way. He could do whatever he wants and there may be some sort of family guilt or maybe, you know, his father's tough on him or whatever, but he doesn't live with them. Like there's no rules to be broken. It's not like he's got a curfew or something. Um, but that's a separate question from, you know, what are we supposed to take from this fictionalized film? Yeah. And a lot of the book as well deals with his his motivations um, and sort of why you would go about doing this thing so thoroughly. And it seems almost as if he had kind of a antisocial bent <laughs> to like to his personality and just like didn't want to be around people for too long, which is interesting to think about in light of how Penn decides to end the movie, which is with him writing the uh the line in the book that like happiness meaningless unless shared with others or whatever the, mm-hmm. the line is any rights happiness only real when shared i believe is what it is yeah um so it kind of is painted in the film as being this kind of character reversal of him being like oh it turns out the people my relationships is what i've been looking for all along that sort of thing mm-hmm. um but yeah, just this idea that he's going, like you said, like he's going to run away as an adult when that is completely unnecessary and just sort of the, the hubris in him just as a person where he keeps having these situations where he should be injured or arrested or killed and it never happens. So he just keeps like pursuing the next thing and the next thing. And then eventually mm-hmm. he gets to the point in Alaska where he can't get away with it anymore. And that's when it sort of falls apart. Um, so that kind of hubris and the sort of like, I don't know, like privilege that he has that allows him to do this thing. It's kind of like for a lot of my life, I've been thinking about how cool it would be to hike the Appalachian trail, either like in sections or as a whole thing. So, uh, I got bored a couple weeks ago and I was like, let me see how much it would cost to hike the Appalachian trail all the way through. And a lot of the accounting I saw from different websites was like several thousand dollars. to to Mm. do this thing and not only that but you have to like give up several months of income and pay several months of bills and all that sort of stuff so you have to have like a lot of money put back um so it just kind of makes me think of like 
out of the what, what allows someone to live this kind of life, right? Like he's well, a young white dude I mean, in America. He sets he gives away twenty four thousand yes. dollars, which that's a that's a real detail, and that's you know straight from the book. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and then he's, he keeps like five hundred, and then he then he ends up burning it like the next night. Yeah, which is like why why even do that? And then his what he does after that is find a job so he can make yeah, some money. I, uh, that's something I noticed this morning. That is kind of strange. He's working at Burger King or something. Yeah. Which in the book it's McDonald's, so it's weird that it changed. Well, maybe it is McDonald's. I don't. I didn't. I don't remember. No, well, no, in the movie he like gets a check from Burger King, but in the book it's McDonald's, so it's like a huh. weird little branding switch. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, he, you know, that's why he works with Wayne, so he can make that you know big thousand dollar check, so he can go off to Mexico and do whatever it is he does. Yeah, and and something Jency said as we were watching it, she said kind of what you're saying is the. Not only, I mean, the film, but also the the character, uh, McCandless, is sort of romanticizing uh, the plight that a lot of people suffer from. You know, uh, it's sort of looking at like homelessness through rose-colored glasses. You know, uh, but there is, I think, there is some attempt at a distinction. Um, when he goes to the city and he's like getting like the, the bed for the night in some sort of free lodging. Yeah. Some sort of shelter. And, uh, and then he just leaves abruptly. Um, and you see it's really, uh, the city that he's fleeing there and, and society as the Eddie Vedder song says, <laughs> yeah. uh, that he is repulsed by. Um, uh, and, and, and that's one part where you can see the film sort of saying, uh, he wants to be in nature, not, he doesn't just want to be away from his family. He wants to be in solitude and he wants to be, you know, in a natural, setting yeah and not just anywhere else yeah and and i think you can read it a couple of ways where he's you know walking around you know la or wherever that's supposed to be and you have all the the homeless people around and i think you can read it either as him being like oh this city is disgusting look at this look at this like economic divide and these people on this uh, you know this uh, patio having drinks and a good time all these other people are starving and cold on the street um, but the way I, I like to read it, and I don't know if this is like the film doesn't really hint at which one of these is correct, but sort uh, sort of embarrassment of him being like, I am not homeless, you know, him being like, I'm using this mission, but really I'm just this guy who's like on some ideological quest to make a point to my parents and to, to live in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I don't really, I shouldn't take advantage of these same uh, resources, things like that. But he's also repulsed by his sort of place in the economy and in the culture. Because uh, one of my favorite parts is in this time when he's wandering around and he's at like he's walking by this fancy bar and he he sees this sort of yuppie looking guy and he he sees his face on this guy. Yeah, uh, and so it's like he can sort of see his his future or, or one 
version of what used to be his future, what could have been his future. And he accordingly hits the road, you know? Um, and so the, I, maybe there's something there to sort of lend it more to the uh, sort of socioeconomic critique as opposed to uh, a privilege critique. Cause you know, it, it's one thing we, it's kind of hard for the movie to win. We can say, um, oh, he shouldn't, you know, do these, uh, this thing, this is sort of condescending in a way, sort of patronizing. It's a, it's a life or it's afforded by luxury, but it's all, but then the alternative then is to just engage in that life of luxury and just be an asshole, you know, uh, or a different kind of asshole. Yeah. I was, that's the sequel, <laughs> a different kind of asshole into the asshole. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I don't know. It's just early on in the film and, and this kind of gets, pro, you know, problematized by things that happen later on. But I think Penn definitely presents him as he kind of valorizes him of like yeah. this higher order of human being. Um, and then it kind of gets torn down a little bit as we go along, but not really, not really to the level that I think could have been done or maybe should have been <laughs> in order to completely dispel this myth of the, you know, rugged individual young man striking out into the, the heart but of I, the country. See, I think, I think Sean Penn is trying to cultivate that myth. I think he's using a, a sort of journalistic novel. Uh, that a lot of people are familiar with and he's using that story to put it on this mythological level to perpetuate that myth that he to me it seems like Sean Penn really seems to believe in that myth uh, I don't I that's what that's what I mean when I say there's a limit to like the fidelity criticism here because you know you can only criticize what what the film sort of suggests are its intentions and it does it to me it doesn't seem like Sean Penn has any intention of just like telling a journalistic sort of fact based human interest story he is uh, to me he's trying to light a fire under like a certain type of young person's ass uh you know and and the and the Eddie Vedder soundtrack is no small part of that that's like key to the valorization i think cuz there's some there's some great songs in this movie yeah like guaranteed the one that i think eddie vetter won a golden globe for that song hmm. and that's a really good song and a, a lot of them are are pretty well maybe not the one that is talking about society because that one seems a little a little corny to me now um, we have we have agreed which we have agreed is I a mean, line from that song. They're all they're they're very very Eddie Vedder song. I um, really like the the one. I think it's with a plan on a mandolin. It's called Rise. Uh, I love that song. And uh, Big Hot Sun or Big Hard Sun. Um, yeah, I I I love the soundtrack, man. Yeah, it's good. I love uh, Eddie Vedder. Yeah. Why not? He has a um, Earth Liberation Front tattoo on his leg. Interestingly enough, 
hot. But um, something, and this is, this isn't necessarily about, well, it's not really about fidelity to the book, but it's about the way in which the story is told in the the movie, which again is, it's tricky because he's, you know, pins adapting a book that is a work of journalism. Right. And, and so what, how he handles that in the film is he puts a lot of Krakauer's words, a lot of Krakauer's narration into the mouth of the sister. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember that. makes her into this sort of like immensely wise beyond her years observer of everything that's happening. And it's really kind of strange seeing it this time around just because like the level of insight that she has into a lot of the events in the movie, uh, it's just a little, I don't know, it just struck me as a little bit strange and a little bit, I don't know, hard to, hard to buy into, I guess. I could, I could be wrong, but I think that within the last, I don't know, four or five years, the sister in real life uh, published a book of her own. And it came to light that all of the criticism of the parents uh, in the film and in the book is like the PG-13 version. And it's like way worse. Oh. Like the family dynamic. I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure she has a book that has some like serious uh, uh, updates to to that story. Yeah, well, I will say in the film, they really up the ante with the parents stuff because it's in the book for sure. But in the movie, they make it like they have the little dramatization of a fight that they're having where they like become physical with one another. Yeah. Um, so they really, you know, do make it more kind of, uh, you know, shocking, I guess, in, in the film. But no, that's that's I didn't know that. That's kind of interesting because in the book, she's just kind of she's around and there's like a short chapter that's told about her life. And she becomes a uh, her she marries a guy and they start an auto parts business and she's working really hard to make a million dollars very young. And that's her life path. And, you know, he talks to her about, you know, how heartbroken she was when Chris died, but how she doesn't have the same kind of impulses. Um, so, yeah, here's here's a uh, just a quote about this book. It's called The Wild Truth by Kareen McCandless, uh, a New York Times bestseller. The Wild Truth is an important book on two fronts. It sets the record straight about a story that has touched thousands of readers, and it opens up a conversation about hideous domestic violence hidden behind a mask of prosperity and propriety. That's from NPR.org. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And- I've not read that, but I remember hearing about it. Um, and uh, apparently it's pretty shocking from what I heard. Mm. Cause I know, and with the whole dynamic with the parents is, is a big driving force and in all forms of this story and to read about his dad who both in the film and in the book is very like, you need to get your shit together, go to law school, become successful. Um, I've opened all these doors for you to do these great things. Whereas his dad is like typical boomer and kind of fell ass backwards into a really great job. Um, and like the government paid for him to go to school. And then with a bachelor's degree, he goes off to work for NASA and all this sort of stuff and just sort of has all these opportunities that w- would literally be impossible to have today unless you like <laughs> go to MIT and shit. Yeah. 
Um, so it's just interesting to see see the early kind of beginnings of people realizing that baby boomers didn't have it quite as hard as they say they did. Uh, <laughs> not that they didn't work hard, but that it was just a different system they were working under. Yeah, a different like a different age of the economy. Yeah, and of the education system, which has just progressively yeah. locked more and more people out of such positions. Um, but yeah, like that, I'd be interested. I don't know that I'll ever read that book because, to be honest, like after this week, I'm kind of burnt out on this whole story. <laughs> but but maybe sometime it was, I'll come it back. It was such a big it. deal. Um, I remember it was like the movie me and my friends were talking about. We were excited about it. And I, I remember romantic. reading an interview uh, before, right as this came out. And I, you know, I've always been obsessed with Paul Thomas Anderson. And this is right as uh, There Will Be Blood was coming out. And I remember reading an interview with Sean Penn <clears throat> where he was talking about they were filming part of this movie in uh, just just like up the up the way from a location where Paul Thomas Anderson was shooting There Will Be Blood. And they were both almost done and they like showed each other their films. <laughs> and I was just like pissed off that Sean Penn got to see there will be blood and like a special PTA screening. Sean, um, Sean Penn sees, uh, you know, a couple scenes of there will be blood and he's like, Oh shit. <laughs> I fucked up. Uh, uh, but, but yeah. yeah like, and, and Paul Thomas Anderson sees into the wild and he's like, that was cute. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Good. Good try, man. Just that God that this we mentioned it earlier, but the scene with the apple where he looks into the camera. Yeah. That I fucking hate that scene <laughs> so much. Like they make a like and maybe this is how he was, but they make McCann listen to kind of a this like dopey nerd guy who's supposed to be this like super intelligent, super magnetic personality. But he's kind of annoying to me <laughs> in in the movie yeah. watching it now. He's I mean, he's uh, this sort of American archetype. He's like Huck Finn, you know? Yeah, desperately wants to be Huck Finn, but is like yeah. quoting Tolstoy. I don't know if you've known people like that. I've known a couple who are very into like reading the classics and they're like, that's where the real truth is. So they read like Dr. Zhivago or, you know, any of those books that he has. And they're like, Tolstoy understood life, but Tolstoy himself was kind of a giant hypocrite in a lot of ways. Well, Tolstoy renounced his like major works. You know, Tolstoy renounced War and Peace and Anna Karenina and became like a communist Christian. Yeah, <laughs> or uh, a collectivist Christian. Uh, which again, when when you're like a count, it makes it easier for you to do those kinds of things. Yeah, it's Tolstoy. The end of Tolstoy's life is worth uh, worth looking into, and and Tolstoy's contributions to uh, sort of the, not theology, but, um, Christian philosophy are, um, uh, would, would, we would do well to heed or Christians would do well to heed those, uh, books because they're extremely smart and they're like very socially engaged and mostly about poverty and wealth inequality and distribution. Um, yeah, Tolstoy had a real sort of meltdown uh after his success and like i said pretty sure he's like renounced his major uh novels yeah 
I don't know if you ever, like, I, I won't say the dude's name, but at MTSU, there was a dude who was in the master's program who kind of only read the classics and, like, deeply studied Tolstoy and, like, Tolstoy's opinion of Herman Melville or, you know, or Melville's opinion of Tolstoy or whatever the hell it was. Um, and whenever I would tell him that I was, like, working on something with some, on some, like, you know, postmodern American novel or something, he would just be like, oh, well, okay. It's almost as if he was saying, why would you do that? <laughs> like, why wouldn't you just study the classics forever and keep mining those? Um, yeah. And I, I'm kind of like, I'll, I'll read anything that, uh, excites me. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. li- reading Moby Dick right now. Um, you're on a then, like, like classic American kick, right? And Sister Carrie. Yeah. And yeah. Just, just keep moving Sister backwards. Carrie. And, uh, but then like, I'm also reading Capitalism in the Web of Life by Jason Moore. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't uh, – it does uh, – academia feels very, you know, entrenched. You're, you're this or you're that. Yeah. And yeah. I, just, I just don't understand <laughs> – I just don't understand that entrenchment. Yeah. And it's something that like – it plays into my – of what I'm saying about McCandless but also just how I feel about academia, which is – that specialization is sort of silly and you know it's it's annoying to have someone act as if you're not allowed to read certain things because you didn't you know write your dissertation on them or whatever well and it's such a clear sort of uh, uh manifestation of like of uh sort of the market ideology infiltrating the university it's like you the same way you specialize um you know any sort of business you do one job you stand there and you push your fucking button uh, over and over and over again you you know that's that's what our economy tends toward it's like you know how to do one thing um and that is not like conducive to real learning or like uh, a true education or even like health, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's, I don't, I, you know, I'm not smart enough to pick that all apart and say why, you know, capitalism tends toward that, but that's what happens. People are taught that you have to do one thing and you have to spit, you know, it's anyway, not even, it's uh, not even like, and you know this is this is the last thing I'll say about it, and we can like move on to something more important. But it's not even just, especially in English, that you focus on one field. It's that you focus on one very specific thing within one field. So you can say, or like, even one writer. Yeah, or well, well, yeah, and sometimes like one work, <laughs> that kind yeah. of thing. Um, and so it's it's sort of it's very can feel very constrictive. Um, but there are a lot of people that buy into it wholeheartedly i once went to a conference where a girl um a girl a young professional in, in the field was reading um this paper that was a part of her dissertation that was all about a specific kind of tree that the dutch encountered in indonesia or something and it was called like the death tree and it was poisonous and she was writing about how this tree encapsulated all of dutch colonialism or something like that um which, to be honest, like, that's kind of cool. And, like, the paper was, uh, some parts of it, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But to to be like, this is what I do. 
this is what I spent these years learning about, yeah. and here's what I'm a per, what I'm a professional and expert in. Yeah, I all the all the big thoughts have been had, and so in one in in one way, I can understand someone <clears throat> wanting to focus on like uh, you were talking about the guy who wants to focus on the classics, but but that can be updated. You know what I'm saying? And so this, there are new, there are great new books, uh, that can address those great thoughts that are in old books as well. Um, but I, I just, I just don't understand how or why, uh, when these thoughts are available, and these great books are available. We are made to write about a fucking tree or, or, you know, some just ultra specific thing. Um, uh, to me, it just seems very, very boring. And the other side of that, you said all great thoughts have been had recently. There was a book published and I can't remember the name of the author, but it's just like a, a history of the mosquito, which is, I, I'm very fascinated by and like want to buy the book and read it. It just looks awesome to me. Um, it's sort of like that and like the Emperor of Maladies, that book that's just about cancer. And like I read yeah. the book that's just about the Gulf of Mexico. Like when somebody writes a book about like some big topic like that, but it's very like spans different fields and is like history, but also sort of literature and also sort of anthropology. I find all that very interesting. Um, but that's, it's sort of like specializing in a very broad way, if that's yeah. something I can say. Anyway, um, that's kind of what McCandless is doing, <laughs> is he, he specializes in a broad way. Um, and a lot of, it's interesting how much of, both in the book and the movie, it, within his journey, or across his journeys, he's always continually trying to learn things. And that's kind of, mm -hmm. you know, the big thing that he tells how Holbrook's character is new experiences or what give life meaning or whatever, or what, what man craves most. And so he's trying to sort of be self-taught and be this autodidact and all these things. And it's funny because it's very admirable, but at the same time, it's kind of what gets him killed in the end. <laughs> um, especially with like identifying the plants and also with just like how to prepare the meat. Zach Galifianakis' advice doesn't really pan out for him, um, or he like misinterprets it. Is that Zach Galifianakis? Yeah, weird. I remember. Right? I I remember thinking that that sounded a lot like Zach Galifianakis, but I just thought no way that it was him. Yeah, I I looked it up to make sure. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's kind of blowing my mind right now. You want me to pause for a minute? You can <laughs> gather yourself. Uh, no, one thing I did want to say is uh, you mentioned him, the, the, the death scene. I believe in the book, Krakauer tells a story. He's trying to, to sort of empathize with this impulse McCandless has to put himself in danger. Uh, and to do foolish things as a young man. And I believe he tells a story about hiking up a mountain. Yeah, the devil's and then thumb. smoking weed. And, and lighting his tent on fire. <laughs> Is that what happens? I can't remember, yeah, but... Uh, it's, I just read that part earlier yeah. today, actually. It's like he... It's a 
peak called the Devil's Thumb, and it's kind of on the Alaska-Canada border. And uh, he goes to try to climb it alone, and the whole trip is just, like, designed to murder him. But he keeps going, and at one point he gets kind of depressed because he's stuck in his tent during these this continuous snowstorm. So he smokes his victory weed that he had brought for after he climbs the mountain and uh like inadvertently burns part of his tent mm. and so he's like oh fuck well now i have to do something and i think eventually he does like he manages to climb it and then make it back um, but it's like not you know he he almost kills himself multiple times mm-hmm. and so after the trip he's like okay why did i do that like <laughs> what what was my motivation for all of this and so that's yeah. what he uses to try to relate to McCandless in this like seemingly self-destructive, but maybe just like overly confident like way of moving through the world, which is kind of, it's so far outside of my own t- like frame of mind about stuff that it's like hard to relate to in any way. Especially when you have people who like know the lay of the land telling you this is dangerous and stupid. Like the guy, uh, I can't remember who it is. Says like, if you make it out alive, come see me or something. Um, yeah. So like that guy clearly understands the risk and yet he just walks out there. Uh, yeah. M- motivation is like the whole thing in this movie. You're just like, why is he doing this? Um, and not, I'm not saying that's like a fault of the movie. I think that's what the movie's trying to get us to think about. Yeah. And I, and it's sort of, there's a lot going into it. You can take that kind of romantic view of he's doing it to get close to the wild heart of life or whatever. Um, you know, going into nature so that he may truly live. And there's also like running from all of his problems in the, quote unquote real world which is not as we've talked about what were those problems like okay his parents are hypocrites and we're assholes and abusive and all that but like you said he could just like not go home anymore you know he could just sort of go live his own life and do his own thing but there's I don't know it's just something it's something more than that and it's kind of like there's a lot about him as a character even though he was a real person um, that's just sort of fascinating and but at the same time like deeply frustrating of like why why did you do this like what was the point of all of this and it's kind of like i was explaining this to lava while we were watching it uh, how i felt about it which is like he refuses all this advice and insists that he sort of knows what he's doing and he's never really suffered any major consequences for any of his adventures therefore he thinks like i'll pull it out like one way or the, or another uh, and if I don't, I'll die. Right. Uh, but it's sort of like, I don't think, I don't think he ever sort of meant that second part of like, well, if I make it out alive, I think that was just sort of like a, like a bravado type thing. But at the same time, you, does it really matter? Like he goes into the woods and, or he goes into the wilderness in Alaska, uh, having like very little expertise in the wrong kinds of supplies and all this kind of stuff and dies from it. But is that okay? Like, is that a happy death? And the film and the book both imply that, yeah, it's kind of, he died sort of pleased with himself, uh, which is, I don't don't really know how to feel about that. There's worse ways to die. 
uh, there's probably better ways to die. I can, I can, I mean, just from my own personal opinion is I'd rather die alone in a bus in the middle of Alaska than in a nursing home. Yeah. But the nursing home implies that you're very old at that point. Yeah. Uh, which is a different, the, the length of his life is what I think catches most people up is the fact that he's what, 23, 24 when he dies. 24, I believe. Uh, yeah. But he had like lived, uh, you know, capital, capital L lived quite a bit. Yeah. Up to that point. Um, seen a lot across the country multiple times. Like even before he went on this big trip, he would just like drive across the country, drive to Alaska. Um, so yeah, but again, he had the bankroll to do that, which would be nice. Um, it's funny, like the, all that money he gives away in the book, it mentions that it's given to him by a family friend. It's a gift of a friend of the family. And he gives him like he 40, yeah. And he gives him like $40,000 and he still has, you know, more than half of it left when he gets through at Emory. I think there's some weird stuff going on in that family because that's another detail they mention in the movie is he finds out the truth about his parents' marriage when he's in, I think they say he's in California mm -hmm. and he's visiting some like extended family and they like tell him, I'm like, who are these relatives telling him this? Like, what was that conversation like? Well, I don't know if you remember that, like it, it, the whole, well, it mentions it in the movie too, that like his dad had two families basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that's how he, that's what I'm saying. He finds all this stuff out. Yeah. When he's of age, you know, mm -hmm. in in California or wherever it was, but I'm like, who are these family members sharing that information? Um, I don't know. It just it just seems like there's a lot of family stuff not being addressed. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and it, it and it kind of makes you wonder, like that interaction where he finds out like how hostile was that? Cause those are, that, that's something that like does, doesn't just go away. I mean, his dad had like eight children or something crazy like that. And most of them with his first wife and like the one that he has after he's started this other family that he like doesn't claim. It's just like, I don't know that whole family dynamic is deeply, deeply fucked. Yeah, and I think that that book by his sister is maybe getting into that a little more. Yeah, and but you know, um, to to get into the the filmmaking a little bit more, that's one thing that I wanted to mention, and it happens in that scene where uh, it's being explained to us that he found out about this whole troubled family past. Um, I don't really like the way that those kind of flashback scenes are shot. Are those kind of like it's, there are a lot of weird kind of montages. They're meant to be these sort of artsy montages of the past and the present, and like Emil Hirsch looking pensive and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't really care for those very much. It happens a lot, and I guess it's trying to condense a lot of material down into just a few moments. But like, there's the one where he's in. Uh, Carthage in South Dakota with Wayne and all the grain elevator guys and they're like partying and he's like playing the piano and singing and everybody's like having a good time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know. I just didn't, I didn't care for those so much. And like when we go into slab city, there's that little like part of the dude playing the song that's meant to like introduce us to what slab city is. 
Yeah, I bet the original cut of this movie was four and a half hours. God, yeah. And that's that's another thing that I don't think we've mentioned yet, that it's two and a half hours long. And I had forgotten that. And sitting through it, it, it felt two and a half hours long. Yeah. Um, especially the beginning. Like, I, I get that they're, like, establishing this whole, you know, showing you the immensity of the wilderness and Alaska and all that sort of stuff. But it just kind of drags. It's a lot of, like... Uh, plotting movement with like acoustic guitar and Eddie Vedder like howling. Yeah. Uh, here's a here's a strange thing that I noticed. Did you pick up on the sockslessness? Oh, in the Burger King. Well, yeah. So he's not wearing socks, but early in the in the movie, it's one of those flashback scenes where they're talking about his parents graduating from college and there's a quick shot of the dad's feet he like holds up his foot and he's not wearing socks and and then later when that super dramatic moment when the father like sits down in the middle of the street he's like pulling on his pants and you can see he's not wearing socks Um, see i i noticed that but i didn't know what the hell that was supposed to be uh, it, it seemed weird to me. Yeah. And then there's a few, like, like you said, there's the part in Burger King where he's told he has to wear socks. And I think there's another moment where he's, you see, he's not wearing socks. Well, the, the simple and, explanation is that just in the book, it mentions that he never wore socks, which is just, <laughs> just but a, it's, a, a in the movie, it's clear he that he, it's, it's somehow supposed to connect him okay. to the father, which is, I, I don't know if that's the best thing to pick to try to connect him to the father, you know, it's maybe, yeah, I don't, I don't, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. I, I had never noticed it before. Yeah. I don't know. It, it seems like, it, you know, maybe you're right. And Penn's trying to use that to, to show some sort of like deeper kind of connection or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but it's maybe not the best attribute to pick because <laughs> we're not even sure if it's really there or not. Uh, but I will yeah, say that scene, underdeveloped that scene is one of the few uses of the like weird artsy montage that i did like is when they're talking about his parents in college and it's only because that uh sharon old's poem that he reads to his sister is just a really good poem Mm -hmm. Uh, so that kind of makes the scene better kind of reminded me i can't remember what they're called but there was like a i think pbs or somebody made this kind of documentary that was like poets reading their work doing like dramatic readings of their work and it was like shot very kind of artsily i can't remember what it's called but we used to watch him in in like high school and i was always like oh that's amazing <laughs> i don't think i've seen that uh but yeah i i love that moment um but i'm i sort of sympathize when they go into the restaurant i sympathize with the braves fans <laughs> they were they were pumped man that was nine. Was that nineteen ninety or ninety one? I think it's meant to be ninety, like because I think it's, yeah, because nineteen ninety I think is when he graduates. Okay. Yeah, I think the Braves had a pretty good year. No, they went to the uh, World Series in ninety one. Um, anyway, this is the least relevant detail possible. No, but they had those like. They were all wearing the cool like retro Braves hats with like the lowercase a 
Yeah. Re- pretty uh, cool stuff. They're all doing the the offensive chap. <laughs> the the name uh, of the the documentary series with the poets I was talking about is called the the United States of Poetry and it was made in 1995. Nice. If anyone is interested, there's a really great clip of James Still reading his poem Heritage that I really love. So yeah, PBS PBS made some great like literary stuff in the 90s and 80s. Uh, there's a great Raymond Carver documentary called To Write and Keep Kind uh, that they produced. Um, yeah, people shit on PBS, but I like have very fond memories of it from when I was a kid. Um, and in Kentucky, we had KET, which is uh, the like state affiliate of PBS. And it's like one of the only states that does that. And they would have like weird, like local stuff. They'd have like an old man making brooms or some shit, <laughs> like uh, just like cool stuff that was relevant to to the state. That was like, oh, I live there. That's cool. Hmm. Um. Shit. What was I gonna say? Oh, just a, a one question I I had written down was. Are there any, or am I missing any references to like, um, other than the dam to like nature and man's corruption of nature? Uh, because it seems like any sort of, I mean, climate change is not mentioned at all. Um, and McCandless's roaming about at free will is not problematized. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, so I'm wondering if you caught anything that I didn't catch or any sort of like uh, commentary on that because nature in this movie is sort of always unspoiled. Yeah. And, and I don't know. I think the thing with that we've, kind of figured out with the the podcast is that we do films that are related to climate change and or man's relationship with nature and then sometimes we just do like some random thing <laughs> that we're like oh we'll see what we can find in here yeah. um so this you know like you're saying climate change not really present the only thing i can think of that's like explicitly kind of the way sort of questioning the way that nature is curated and organized is when he's trying to uh get information about paddling down the river mm-hmm. and maybe this is what you're talking about the dam but he goes to the office and that like asshole park ranger is on the phone and uh and that like the acting in that scene's not really that great where it's like emil hirsch asking about it and the guy's like yeah the next permit is in 2003 and he's like 12 years what <laughs> come on man <laughs> Um, yeah. And so, it just, they sort of make the same point like three times in a row. Okay. This guy's being an asshole. The information is ridiculous. Um, I'll do it anyway. And you know what? It'll work out perfectly. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's uh, like you're saying that the nature that's presented is always more or less unspoiled, which is kind of, I mean, and I was talking about the bus too. Like I went on this mini rant on about the bus where he finds it and it's meant to be this kind of almost magical thing of like, holy shit, how'd this get here? 
But then in the book, that's it's, what they call it—the magic bus. Yeah, and then in the uh, in the book, it's explained. Krakauer explains that it was a mining company that were they were going to go up and mine, I think like antimony or something like up in the that area. But so they brought out those three like three old buses, and they were going to be cabins for the miners to live in. But then they realized that it wasn't worth it because to build a road was unfeasible, and so they just abandoned it and they left one up there for like hunters to use or whatever. So that's kind of, I don't know, a hint of the kinds of things that we usually talk about. Uh, But it was kind of like the one success story of like, because that part of the wilderness was so inaccessible, they were like, ah, fuck it, we'll just leave it be, Uh, which doesn't normally happen. But it's kind of funny, like Slab City, like the very existence of Slab City is fascinating to me, which is like it's an old army base that just has these giant concrete slabs and people just go there. And just live there for part of the year, then they leave. And I kind of want to yeah. go and visit. I think it sounds fascinating. I was, uh, I saw where you can go visit the magic bus mm. as like a tourist. I don't think I'd want to do that. I think, I think Chris McCandless would, uh, is turning in his grave at that information. Yeah, that is a good kind of perversion of the kinds of things he was explicitly <laughs> against. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like the, the hero, hero making the kind of, um, you know, fuck what's the canonization that happened of him is kind of fascinating. Cause I really don't see him as someone to like model yourself after in any kind of way. Uh, like he, I guess he had the this fil- and of, the film makes a hero out of him. The book, yeah. the book is like Krakauer empathizing and really trying to understand yeah. this this sort of tragic death yeah and and so to see the movie and there are plenty of people like you were saying and i was you know pretty similar when you watch this as a young man you're like hell yeah i want to do that like i want to strike out and like shave underneath a uh, you know a agricultural <laughs> irrigator thing and hitchhike through the the you know open skies of montana and all that kind of shit um but then i don't know when you start breaking it down and getting at the heart of what he's doing sort of why he's doing it it's really a much kind of sadder story than i think than inspirational i guess yeah yeah for sure i I remember though it there's something sort of archetypal and meaningful about this story because like you're saying it resonates with so many people and i remember i someone told me about this book and I was in, I guess I just started college and I was just at Barnes and Noble one night and I saw it there and I just sat down in one of the, you know, in the store somewhere in a chair and read like 30, 40 pages. And I remember I was so fucking poor that I like could not buy the book and I, uh, put it back on the shelf and I came back to Barnes and Noble the next like two or three nights and just sat there and read the whole book in, you know, three or four sittings. That's, uh, <laughs> and I didn't own the book until like two years ago. That's but I so read it God. Uh, in Barnes and Noble. That's hilarious. That's <laughs> <laughs> you could have just like gone to the library. Yeah, I guess I could have. I didn't think about that. I uh, was not a, a <laughs> <like> regular <laughs> frequenter of the uh, 
of the James E. Walker <laughs> Library. Or even like the public library. It's just so funny. <laughs> I, I lived I lived like a mile from Barnes and Noble back then, so I know, that's probably it, why. That's it's just funny. <laughs> I, I'm, like I like to think that an employee noticed, but he's like, "Fuck, what can I really do?" <laughs> he's like, "Oh shit, he's back again." <laughs> I like how the chapter like dog eared, you know. <laughs> Did you someone the, goes someone goes to buy it? I'm like, that's mine. I, I like like. Did you sit in the same place every time, or was it like I, I don't changing remember. up? That's really funny. Um, <laughs> I I would never think to do. I've I've like if there's a book I was trying to decide whether or not I was going to buy it, I would like you know I might sit down and read like a few pages, but to read the whole book. I, that's, that's interesting though. That how is. I am, but it was just like I had to know what happened. No, but that's interesting. I mean, that kind of is a testament to how appealing the story is because it's like a big part of it is that he's this kid who's from this very affluent family and he has his whole future kind of mapped out for him. And if he follows it along, he's going to have a really comfortable existence. Mm -hmm. Uh, But instead, he's like, nah, uh, you know, miss me with that shit. (laughs) And instead, burns all of his money and gives it away and goes and has these adventures i guess which is it's kind of funny to me that his whole thing is like why can't people just be nice to each other and he had a big interest in like apartheid and abolishing apartheid and like ending hunger and then he ends up doing this thing where he's like not really helping anyone but himself well he fixed their marriage (laughs) yeah it's true (laughs) (laughs) through his his magic in the ocean or whatever yeah part of me uh was thinking this morning watching it after you learn his like academic interests it's like i think he was just like depressed as shit and he was like i can't think about this shit anymore i've (laughs) got to just like run away well i mean that makes sense right i mean we have a podcast about climate change uh (laughs) that that sounds good sometimes but it's like and it's kind of i don't know if this is what this is meant to be but the scene where he comes back from mexico and he's in the border patrol office talking to the, which, you know, the border patrol guy is like, gives him like a, you know, slap on the wrist. And it's like, don't do it again. When today he'd be like, I'm sending you to Guantanamo forever. Uh, but he, the, the officer leaves and McCandless looks up at the TV. And I guess he'd like first time he'd seen a TV in a while. And it's George HW Bush giving a speech that I'm pretty sure is about, desert storm in the first Iraq war Mm. uh, where he's like the world can wait no longer. And so we have to do this. And it's almost like, like a, a weird kind of invert, well not inverse, like a different version of the scene in the big Lebowski where Lebowski. This aggression will not stand man. (laughs) Yeah. It's sort of like a weird version of that where McCandless sees it and he has no real context for what's happening. And he just goes right back to, you know, tramping and, and, you know, being on the road and stuff and has no sort of interest or involvement with any of these big world issues. And it gets back to, I think I was talking about this when we watched Captain Fantastic, which is, Mm -hmm. I have a sort of, and I can't control it, kind of reflexive disdain for people that completely withdraw from society of like, oh, you coward, you have to live down in the filth with the rest of us. Yeah, I uh, 
I noticed that part in Into the Wild, and yeah, I took it as, I took it as, you know, especially knowing Sean Penn, um, his political views, um, I took it as just another reason that McCandless wants to go off the grid, escape, escape the sort of shitty political reality. Yeah, he's um, like, oh, this bullshit again. Yeah, it, it sort of reminded me, I just recently rewatched uh, Little Miss Sunshine. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where Dwayne, Paul Dano, is uh, he's in the hotel room right before the grandfather dies, you know. And through the wall, he can hear his parents arguing and Frank, Steve Carell, hears it and like turns up the TV. He's like, don't listen to that. But when he turns up the TV, it's uh, George Bush giving a speech. Um, and so it's like, what, it seems like the movie's implying it would be better to uh, listen to his bullshit parents argument than to turn on the news and you know listen to this like evil coming from this bastard's mouth yeah. uh, but but i do think in into the wild it's that he is repulsed by society and because the the after that bush quote it cuts to him hopping on a train yeah and and that's kind of every time he encounters the kind of ugliness of society, he, you know, beats feet, <laughs> gets out of there. Um, and and it's and it's you know that's uh, an interesting sort of thing I'm noticing here is it reminds me of Night Moves, and it, it seems like the maybe one of the best characters we've encountered in all these fucking movies is the guy who runs the like collective sort of garden or farming co-op or whatever, who's like not participating in destruction and like the bull strips, bullshit sort of mainstream economy, bull strips, bull strip, bullshit, mainstream economy. And, uh, but still is a functional adult and like has a family. Um, yeah. And you know, he's using all of these like trappings of society. I'm like trying to think of a way to not say that word anymore, uh, <laughs> where he, you know, he's selling his vegetables and he's like, he's, he's enmeshed in it only as far as he is like, okay with, so he'll like participate to sell his vegetables or to like buy a new, you know, tractor or whatever the hell it might might be. But otherwise he's outside of it, but he's not outside of it in a way where he's completely sort of secluded or in which he's like being destructive. Uh, he's, he's, he's outside of it, but he's what he's doing is he's providing an alternative to people within it. Yeah. Like a feasible and very sustainable alternative to it. Um, He's involved to, in it in with in a negative way, like, or in a I guess a positive way. He's taking something away from the from the society he is against. 
But in that way, he is still, you know, to some degree participating in it in that he is impacting it. Yeah. And I don't know, we have this kind of, it's kind of a new, well, not a new running theme, but one that we haven't really mentioned of kind of idealistic loners that we keep coming across. I mean, we have mm-hmm. McCandless and even, even though it's not a movie we've done, uh, Dwayne in Little Miss Sunshine, that's his name, right? Dwayne? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> he's kind of like, <laughs> kind of the encapsulation of the, uh, like super idealistic teenager who like has just discovered Nietzsche and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then like Jesse Eisenberg's character and night moves, who's kind of a loner within a collective, which is kind of an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. And then in captain fantastic, we have like, like these parents that are these kind of loners that turn their children into the same sort of secluded, uh, idealistic, you know, super minch character. Um, and it's just interesting to see that coming up again because that is sort of it's kind of the American trope when it comes to man interacting with nature is the idealistic loner who, you know, convenes with the land and doesn't need to be, you know, hamstrung by society and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and and it's largely um, an escape from like the economy and like. Um, employment necessity. There's a great book called The Place of Styles, like a 1960s criticism. I think I've talked, mentioned it on this podcast before, where this uh, scholar critic, uh, Richard Poyer, I believe his name is, uh, talks about, sort of conceptualizes this trope as, as the raft and the shore. He uses Huck Finn. Um, to say the raft is sort of freedom, uh, and the shore is history and family and political reality. And, uh, anyway, you definitely see that in Into the Wild. You see, I think he like explicitly mentions it at the beginning. Where he's saying he, you know, he doesn't want these obligations. It's it's in the speech where that ends with him saying like total freedom. Yeah. But it but that really does place him in that sort of lineage of like Ishmael and Huck Finn and uh, you know Sal from uh, On the Road. Yeah, and and you know that's again that's part of the kind of kind of timeless appeal of this story and Mm -hmm. why I think it's so easy for especially young men to, to get sort of sucked into this, this kind of mythology of Alexander super tramp and, you know, leaving, leaving a lonely inscription on a train in Canada that only like three other, uh, you know, hobos will see (laughs) that kind of, it's that sort of, Mm-hmm. romantic adventurous impulse um that is not yeah i don't i don't want to say that that's by necessity a negative thing but i think taken to extremes it, it certainly can be or taken to these kind of points of ideological immobility where as we see in the film where he like won't take money from people and he won't take advice from people and he's he's very much dedicated to this 
you know, single minded pursuit of going to Alaska and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when it gets to that sort of fixation point, I think it can become uh, dangerous, but otherwise. Hmm. I had something to say and now it's gone. Oh, I, you know, I think we brought into the wild up one time earlier on this podcast, if, if not more. Uh, and I think it was when we were talking about the bitch ass backpedal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't remember what episode that was. Maybe it was captain fantastic. Um, there's always one line that's really bothered me in into the wild. And it's when I think he's talking to Wayne. Maybe it's when they're drunk at the bar and he proposes writing a book about his travels. Yeah. And it's like that that undercuts like everything the character's been saying. It's like, if you're going to like turn this into a product and monetize it, you know, you're just, it's just a completely counter to this whole project. Yeah. And, and it's not that he suggests it kind of offhandedly as like a number of things that he could do. It's like the first thing he mentions. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, Oh, maybe I could write a book about, and then the next thing he says after that, I can't remember exactly what he says, but it like c- completely contradicts what he's just said. Where he's like, I could write a book about it and try to understand, you know, explain to people what, you know, a bullshit system they live in. It's like, oh yeah, but you're trying to like monetize your adventure. Yeah, it's it just seemed kind of uncharacteristic. Um, yeah, and I, I wonder if that's I wonder if that's true. You know, if that was like part of the impulse was that he wanted to sort of carowack it. It's kind of like uh, living long enough to see yourself become the villain. <laughs> I, I wonder <laughs> if like he he goes to Alaska and survives like the river's not, you know, flowing so strongly or like somebody finds him or something and he comes back and writes his like massive book about, um, you know, his brushes with death in the wild and becomes this like new york times best-selling author and like gets a job teaching at like brown or something um I if i'm see honest that i think it's more likely that i think the way it panned out that's how the book became a sensation oh yeah like if he lives it's just kind of an interesting story and then he becomes like <laughs> some like old like reformed former counterculture guy uh but instead he dies and becomes this kind of you know martyr for a different way of living in the world yeah um yeah so i think definitely you know sort of like i don't know he's just another one of those like 90s people who died and became heroes is like kurt cobain or jeff buckley or something like that yeah um, just interesting to think about it that way um because i think he, he definitely is like we've been saying like a kind of a countercultural icon although you know i don't know how much of that is really warranted or helpful and it's uh, unfortunately i think a lot of that is just due to the fact of his sort of unfortunate death mm-hmm. which as we if said he, is, if he had survived i just don't think this would even be a thing no not at all it would be like countless other people that have had 
brushes with death and written books about them, right? Krakauer himself, right? He almost dies on Everest and writes into thin air. Um, But a related thing. um, But Krakauer is like a a great writer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like just as a quick aside, like I I would recommend. I've only read Under the Banner of Heaven and Into the Wild, but I'm very interested in reading. I think Missoula, it might be the one that I want to read. Yeah, um, I want to read. I want to read that one in uh, where men win glory. Yeah, the I've Pat Tillman been book. on my radar for a while. I'm sort of interested in the Pat Tillman book, but at the same time, I don't know if I. I'm sure once I started reading it, because he's such a sort of talented writer and organizer of ideas more so than anything. Like he's really yeah. good at that. Um, I think it would probably be enjoyable. It just it, on the surface, I'm just not very interested. Do you know he's on like the Modern Library? committee or whatever that like selects the the books for modern library no i didn't i saw his name on there on the back of one of my book i was like that's awesome i trust him (laughs) yeah and in in into the wild the book like you're saying he has these sections where he kind of like talks about himself as a way of trying to understand christopher mccandless's motivations and that kind of thing and it's really at first I was kind of like groaning of like, Oh great. There's just going to be like, I too was an angry young man, which it, it sort of is, but it's written in such a way where it's really compelling. Um, and it's not, I don't know. It's, it's like the same sort of Jack Londony trying to survive in an inhospitable wilderness thing, but mm-hmm. he, he has the right level of sort of, uh, you know, reflective thinking and humor in places that makes it not so still. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something I was going to bring up and I sent you this, uh, a pic of this guy's like a bio. Uh, but there was a poet <laughs> that came. I've like weirdly been thinking about this a lot. Well, so there's a poet that came in red as part of this, uh, poet series that Auburn does named Anders Carlson. We, which is kind of a weird name. He's he's from like Minnesota or North Dakota or something, and uh, is very like Nordic, and uh, he even has that that weird kind of Minnesota accent that he would use, like it would come out while he was reading, and it was kind of weird. Um, but so he he had this book, and I actually bought a copy of it called The Low Passions, which I would recommend. It's he's a he's a good poet, but the the most interesting thing about it is that he has spent a lot of time like hopping trains around the country and in Canada he's ridden a bike across the country a couple of times he used to be like a professional rollerblader <laughs> um, both of his parents were Lutheran ministers like just weird a lot of weird details in his life mm-hmm. um, but the the train hopping and the, the sort of vagabond lifestyle is what made me think of uh, McCandless and it's interesting because he doesn't at least in in the books he writes about like how interesting these trips are, but they're very like meticulously planned and, or at least the way he was sort of explaining them at the reading. And he never really meant to sort of escape society completely. He just used them as sort of a way of looking at this kind of underbelly of society, this kind of other part of how people move through the world, which I think is really interesting. Uh, He was a freegan for a while and he has a poem about like uh, this poem about, um, kind of getting all this food from these dumpsters at Kroger. Um, so yeah, he's an interesting guy. And also all, every single poem that he recited, he didn't read it. He just did it from memory. Wow. 
Yeah. So he had, he had a copy of the book in his hand, but he'd be like, he would tell the a little backstory and he'd be like, this one is called whatever. And then he would just recite it for memory. So I was I'm, kind of like impressed that. by that. Um, like, and, you know, that's, it, that's a small thing. That's not very important, but it's like, I could never, even if I had written the poem and looked at it a million times, I would never remember it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Me neither. Yeah, but it's just interesting to see um, the same kinds of, you know, impulses and and, uh, sort of adventure uh, things happening in his work, but not for the the same kinds of purpose of like completely escaping and living, you know, off the grid, but just to sort of dip a toe in and sort of be of these two different worlds at the same time and then come back and you know, get an MFA at Vanderbilt, <laughs> which is what he did. And that's sort of how uh, Volman, William T. Volman is in that book, Writing Toward Everywhere, uh, where he, he makes no sort of pretension about, you know, leaving the world, the, you know, society or the writer's life behind. It's just like he's bored or stifled or whatever it is and he needs to he needs to get out of here <laughs> he says who am i in my yearning for america that i uh repeat or something like that uh i've got to get out of here i've got to get out of here um and so he hops trains for a couple years or something <laughs> uh inter- intermittently uh but his a, a lot of his angle is sort of socioeconomic journalism you know he's really trying to document um, marginalized lives in a capitalist society which i think is important work in in the fact that there are still people that hop trains and like live that kind of lifestyle is yeah. deeply fascinating to me um so I, I need to read that book. I meant to take a look at it uh, before this episode and then forgot about it. But uh, Volman is another one of those like incredibly good writers. So, yeah, yeah, that's uh, I've only read a couple of his books and I've, I've only read his nonfiction. Um, and uh, yeah, he's an extremely thoughtful guy. It is kind of fascinating that he like. He starts out writing mostly fiction, I think, and writes a uh, Europe Central, this like thousand page novel and like wins all these awards. And then since then, I think like I have no I, I don't know if this is true or not. seems like he mostly writes nonfiction. I think he's kept writing both. I think he's extremely prolific because I, I know like his nonfiction works like the the carbon ideologies. Yeah, and there's a few on, volumes of that, and he's written, yeah. you know, writing toward everywhere. Uh, poor people that that one on violence, rising up and rising down, or something like that. Uh, yeah. That's like published as like a 700 page book, but it was actually, uh, I want to say McSweeney's maybe published it mm-hmm. originally, and it was like eight volumes or something. Yeah, that, I would really like. Like th- those are the kinds of writers that I admire the most and that I would like to be where they're like, I'm going to write a book about violence and then they just go off and do it. Or like Carl Ove Canalsgaard, who's like, I'm going to write this book about 
uh, Edvard Munch, and it's going to be about him, but also about all of these other things. Um, and it's just sort of, I don't know, those, those people are fascinating. Krakauer, even though he's more sort of, uh, you know, journalistic and focused, he does the same sorts of things. Um, so Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of what else, if I've forgotten anything. So as far as the film is concerned, like th- this film has, has been like really positively uh, received critically and by the general public, I would say. I don't think I've ever met anybody that doesn't like this movie. Um, everyone finds it interesting in some kind of way. I, I saw yeah, that Empire you meet magazine. people who don't like the character. Uh, yeah. but that's really a testament to pretty good filmmaking, you know, if that's what you're paying attention to. Yeah. And, and I do have a lot of sort of gripes with, with the, the filmmaking and the way it's written and stuff like that. And I think some parts of it are I don't know, a little bit corny for my taste, but overall it's still really great. And it's a really you know fascinating story that you can talk about forever. Um, yeah. I, I did see that, um, uh, I think Empire, like Empire Magazine or something, named it one of their like 500 greatest films of all time, which I think is wow. a little, I mean, it's re- very high praise, but I also think it's a little over ambitious, maybe. Like, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would Well, say it's that. also fucking 500 movies. I can't even think of 500 movies. You say that, but then you sit down and start looking and you're like, oh, there's, there's a lot of these. Well, I, I'm going to say, I'm, if I had to write 500 movies, I think into the wild would be in my top 500. <laughs> but uh, like, it's funny because, uh, looking at some other things, like a lot of people didn't even put it, it wasn't even their like number one film of that year. Right. Because there will be yeah. blood comes out. Um, and then also that's the year of, is that no country as well? Yeah, yeah, they, they, I mean, There Will Be Blood and No Country for All Men were competing against each other at the Oscars, so yeah. it had to be the same release here. So that's just like, I don't know, maybe 2007 was just a really bonkers year for it, the film. I, it was, man. Uh, that time was, that was right when, uh, like, Alfonso Cuaron was coming onto the scene in a real, I guess, Children of Men was 2006, and Babel with like uh, Inyoritu was was getting bigger. You had Paul Thomas Anderson still going strong. Like it was. When was Synecdoche, New York? Like two thousand eight. Right around there. I'm looking at just like a lot of people's lists that they made. So here are some other movies that came out that year. Children of Men says was two thousand. I guess yeah, two thousand seven. Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm not there. Oh yeah, um, Sumo Zodiac. So uh, what 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 you're noticing here is that the you've got these limited. independent filmmakers still getting like huge budgets for theatrical released movies, which like doesn't isn't happening as often now because of Netflix and Amazon. Um, there's just no way you could see a movie like Synecdoche, New York in a theater now because it's so weird. It's such a high risk and it's probably pretty high budget. Oh yeah. Well, for a movie like that, that's not going to yeah. make you millions of dollars. Right. Um, so now that would have been like a Netflix original that like six people 
watch. Exactly. Uh, and he, it's kind of interesting too that like Scorsese uh, was is distributing The Irishman through yeah. Netflix, even though it That's did like getting, a limited. It's getting theatrical releases though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to see that like weird kind of combination. But did you did you see where uh, Corey sent me the link? Did you see where Roma is getting a Criterion next year? No, but that that's not surprising. Um, no, I'm happy to see it though. I'm just happy to know that things that Netflix produces are up for grabs in terms of or like somehow available for Criterion releases because I don't know if this has ever happened before. Yeah, um, I mean. It, Netflix has had some, I mean, Roma for, for instance, but also lesser kind of known, not as heralded stuff like beasts of no nation, which is Kiri, Kiri Fuji. Yeah. The guy who did true detective. Yeah, I can't one. remember his name, his full last name, but he made that uh, based on this novel and, uh, it's an incredibly good film. Um, w- that is very like beautifully shot as you can imagine. So yeah, there's lots of like little gems like that that people don't even notice. But there's also a lot of a lot of bullshit too. Yeah, there. Uh, I think there was one. I'm not sure. I think it might be Netflix produced called Blue Jay, with uh, oh, what is that? Uh, Duplass, Mark Duplass mm-hmm. wrote. I think he wrote it and he stars in it. And Sarah Paulson, uh, just a just you know, kind of a small scale, uh, sad sort of relationship movie. But it's very well made it's in black and white and uh kind of a devastating story uh but yeah there's some there's some some hidden gems yeah a lot of those uh mumble core movies are like that oh yeah that can be our spinoff podcast where we it gets called hidden gems and (laughs) and we just watch like netflix movies that nobody else has seen yeah um well into the wild is definitely not a hidden gem it's a very well-known gem yeah. Um, and it's it's one of the best films that like a former actor has made, I guess. Uh, if you talk about people that make the transition from actor to filmmaker, there's like Clint Eastwood is, is one of them. Um, but I think this is a pretty good accomplishment. for. Yeah, it's right up there with uh, Night of the Hunter by Charles Lawton. Don't you think so? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I don't know. What that's, like a, that's a cool film opinion to have. I'm sure it is, but I just really like, there's a, I just know this cause you know, lava watches the office all the time, but, uh, Michael's nephew where he's like, uh, my name's Luke. Uh, I love cinema. My favorite films are citizen Kane and the boondock saints. <laughs> and I feel like that's a pretty good encapsulation of most like college film guys. Yeah. It's yeah. either that or they're like super into Wes Anderson. Or Tarantino. Yeah. They have their, their guy. Yeah. Um, although I guess our guy is like Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm highly easily Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, Wes Anderson. I really like Noah Baumbach. I really like Alfonso Cuaron and I really like Alejandro Iñárritu. Um, you need to watch Birdman again. That's a movie I haven't seen in a while. So fucking good. Have you seen Have you seen Beautiful with uh, Javier Bardem? Yeah, that's haunting. <laughs> that movie, a haunting movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. That's like low key about the refugee crisis before well before the explosion in the refugee crisis. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, so I guess we're out of stuff to say about Into the Wild. Yeah, our, our best recommendation for this episode about Into the Wild is Watch Beautiful by Inuritu. <laughs> by Inuritu. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Into the Wild, great film. We should have done it a long time ago, but it never got really got around to it. But it's interesting to, to sort of see it now after, you know, a decade. Um, so next week we're doing uh, – we're not really sure what we're doing. Next week we're doing uh, something – disney related um and this is sort of spurred by the uh recent uh acquisition acquisition what do you call it like a opening or something the the recent launch there we go of disney plus uh we're gonna do something either with well i don't know how would you explain it what would you say we're doing so something either decom disney channel original movie oriented so maybe Smart House. I was sort of lobbying for doing a double feature of uh, Spike Jones's Her with Smart House because mm-hmm. there's a lot of overlap in the theme. So maybe if we do some Smart House, we'll bring back in some things we talked about with Her. But also maybe we'll just go deep into the Disney archive and find some like old school uh, kind of like racist propaganda <laughs> and – and uh, see how that cultivated the ideologies of our of our boomer ancestors. <laughs> it's archaeology of the boomers. <laughs> uh, we're looking at cave paint, like racist cave paintings. Like, what could it mean? Uh, but yeah, there's uh, you know a ton of shit on there. I'll, instead of instead of the Chauvet caves, it's the chauvinist caves. <laughs> but isn't Disney that was Plus a nerdy has, ass joke. Sorry. Disney Plus has all the like National Geographic shit too, right? I've or heard something that, like that. Yeah. So there's there's got to be something we can find. We'll just have, like dig through and look. And also like at some point, <laughs> what I'd like to do is find some like I don't think they're Disney. I think they were like Looney Tunes. But there's a lot of old school cartoons from like the 50s and 60s that were like selling national parks as places to like be exploited and you like roll in in your big cadillac and shoot a deer and then tie it to the fender and roll out that kind of stuff i remember Mm. watching those as a kid on like cartoon network at night stuff like that um so i'm gonna i'm gonna try to unearth those because i just remember them and they made a very big impression on me um so yeah we'll, we'll figure it out yeah, I have the sniffle, so I'm like going all Zizek. <laughs> the Looney Tunes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you like the uh, intro to the last episode? I did. Okay. Or is that like the new intro we're keeping, or is that was that like a no, one-off? That, that was a special, special edition, limited time offer. Mm. So yeah, next week we're doing some uh, uh, some Disney stuff. We'll figure out what exactly that means. Maybe we'll just do like a general sort of like Anthropocene's reaction to Disney Plus as a platform. Um, With reference to whatever. (laughs) Maybe here's what we should do. I think we'll just call it the Disney Plus episode and we can watch whatever we want, but we can't tell each other what we're going to watch. Okay. I I actually, I like that. I think that could work. So you just gotta you just gotta find whatever you can find, okay. and uh, I guess if we're gonna have the same password, we'll have to like be careful to not like look at the 
history or whatever. Well, yeah, or you can just like see it, but like not look too much into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that'd be like Disney Plus grab bag. I like it. That's what we'll do. Okay. Make Disney so. Plus grab bag next week. I got some you can grab. I got a bag you can grab. Paper or plastic? <laughs> <laughs>